Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. When the disciples asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would be restored to Israel, he shifts the focus from when to how. So what does it mean for the people of God to be witnesses of the resurrection? And how is this a fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures? Good. Acts chapter 1. We're in a series called Church Matters. And the reason is uh, we wanted to spend the beginning of this year, and this sermon series might take the entire year at this point, but looking at the beginning of the year like why church actually matters. And in the light of that, using a double entendre, a double meaning, what the church actually looks like, why we need it, and what it is doing in the life of God's people. Because as we come out of COVID, there has been a great migration away from, uh, and I'd say not just Christianity and evangelicalism, but a great shift away from the need to gather yourself with a local group of people regularly under a group of elders and be committed to a local church. And so we wanted to just spend some time and reiterate, not just because we're pastors, this is why I hate doing this. Uh, I feel like if I wasn't a pastor, I'd be saying and teaching the same things. Uh, that the church gathered and the church scattered, being part of a group of people who are committed to each other and to a group of elders is absolutely necessary to the life, health, and mission of the church. And so we have been working through a definition of the church that has four parts attached to it and uh, that we've been on the slide there the first slide the church is number one who it's the people of god and you will hear us regularly tell you the church is not a time place or events yes the people of god meet at a place they meet at a certain time they do events but that is not the essence the essence of what the church is is a people And the church has a time in which they exist. The church hasn't always existed, and the church is not always going to exist. The church comes into God's plan, God's mission, at a certain time in His unfolding story, and we have defined that as the overlap of the ages. And if you don't know when the church fits into God's story, you don't know who the church is and why they actually exist. And so it's necessary, it's imperative that we learn where we find ourselves in God's story. Number three, we are seeing, and we're going to talk about this today a little bit, uh, the next two points together, who are empowered by the Spirit. This is how the church actually can be the church. As you look at the story, and we looked at it a few weeks ago, the nation of Israel was unable, as the people of God, to take up their mission in the world. And why? Because the powers of sin, Satan, and death were too strong. And now the church, through the empowerment of the Spirit, will be successful. And so the empowering of the Spirit is absolutely essential. And then the why. Why is there a church? And that is, as we're defining it today and be looking at it today, to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So that is what we want to do. And if you have your Bibles and you're in Acts chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first 10 verses together as we um, jump into this passage. Acts chapter 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day 
he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen, and after his suffering, he presented himself and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Isn't that a powerful sentence? How many of you need Jesus to keep showing up to prove to you things? These people saw Jesus and they were like, I don't think so, that's not you. And he had to keep giving them convincing proofs that he was alive, which... This is why the sermons are going to take so long. <laughs> doubt is actually part of the Christian faith. If you have no doubt in your Christian faith, I don't know how strong of a Christian faith you actually have. Okay? So it's not wrong in, in your life to begin to wonder, to doubt, to be like, is this really true? And the reason I can say that is because if you're truly a believer, <laughs> who is it going to rest upon whether or not you come out of that doubt? And it's through that doubt that the Spirit of God is going to show you many things. Verse 3, he presented himself many proofs. He appeared to them for a period of over 40 days and spoke to them about what, church? Heaven. Praying a prayer and getting to heaven, right? No, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And you go to the very last phrase of the book of Acts, and it is Paul in an island in a Roman prison preaching about the kingdom of God. The entire book of Acts is about, not a plan of salvation, but about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid from their sight. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray the Spirit of God would come and convict all of us, including myself, about who we are in Jesus and what that means for how we should be living. Because we want to be witnesses. We want to be people who are uh, fulfilling the mission that Jesus sent us on. Because it's there, not only will we just do what we're made to be, but we'll actually find joy. So help us be people who seek joy this morning. We ask these things in his name. Amen. As a people of God, we have been given a divine mission. In John chapter 17 and John chapter 20, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I am what? Sending you. That word sent is the idea of like being sent for a specific task, being sent on a missionary. And so we use that phrase to describe ourselves as missionaries. Nate said this morning, we, we speak of ourselves as a family of servant missionaries. The question is, what is the mission that Jesus has sent us on? What is the mission that we are called as a church to embody and enact within the God's story that he is unfolding? And I think Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is, for me, it's one of my favorite places to go 
to unpack what the mission of the church is. There are other passages uh, like the Great Commission, other places as well, um, but I'm going to spend some time in Acts chapter 1 together this morning. And I want to just make a few points and then close with a little, yes, I'm warning you ahead of time. There's going to be a little like test case. You got to talk with people around you and all that fun stuff, okay? So just prepping you. We make five points this morning, quick points, about Acts chapter 1. The first point is Jesus shifts the disciples' perspectives from when to how. I don't know if you noticed that in the passage. How, long, how many days did Jesus spend teaching about the kingdom of God? Forty. And then what's the question they ask? Are you going to now restore the kingdom? <laughs> Do you think Jesus answered that question during the 40 days? My guess is yes. But what is the focus of the disciples? When? What did someone say? The restoration. And specifically, when? Are you going to do it now? Like, when is that, that time coming? You just spent 40 days about the kingdom, and it's amazing, but I want to know you're going to do it right now. And Jesus, rather than scolds them, and I would be like, guys, you remember that 40 days I just spent with you? Did I tell you when the kingdom was coming? In fact, Jesus just, in a sense, gently shifts their perspective to stop asking when and to start being more concerned with the how. And, and you know, I'll just do it. Like, with all this stuff going on in Eastern Europe with Russia and, you know, now we're connecting Gog and Magog and all these people are very excited about the end days and last times coming back and, and being concerned about these are the last days and all these different things going on. And, and I want you to know, like, I'm not saying that's unimportant, but do you know when the last days actually started? When Jesus walked out of the grave and the new world was launched, those are the beginning of the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And there's going to be continuing wars and rumors of wars. And, and I'm not saying don't try to connect all these things and be, un, I mean, we want to understand what's going on in our world. But if that's like your focus, I think you're missing the focus that Jesus is asking you to focus on. The focus is not when, the focus is how. And Jesus shifts his disciples like, rather than trying to figure out, is it now? Jesus like, this is how the kingdom of God is going to come. As you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And so, first of all, as we walk through this passage together, we want to see that Jesus is going to show us how the kingdom of God is coming to earth. Number two... We see that this is a promise in verse 8, not a command. Jesus doesn't say, go witness. Witness is not something in this passage that he's saying that you need to go to the beach and do. He's not saying it's something you need to do to your neighbor and have him over, in a sense, and give them the plan of salvation. And I'm not against either of those things, you hear me? But that is not the essence of what Jesus is after. What Jesus is after is not a command, but a promise. Just read that passage really carefully again. And it says this, But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be what? Witnesses. It's a promise. Jesus, through the Spirit, is making a, like a future prediction that when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you will become something. 
You will actually be given what we're going to talk over the next few weeks together, a new identity. You are now going to take up the role of being witnesses. When the Spirit comes, you will be transformed into witnesses is vastly different than go witness. The fact that it's a promise and not a command changes almost everything about this passage. So that witnessing is not something that you do once a week. It is your life. Every day, everywhere we go together, we are witnesses. So you can't check your box and say, I did my witness this week. You become and you begin to view your life as this all-encompassing promise that you, if you have the Spirit of God upon you, are a witness to the kingdom, to the resurrection of Jesus. Number three, we're moving right along, aren't you excited? Number three, being witnesses is not something new, okay? Uh, we, we think many times that, like, Jesus is, like, always struggling in some way, not because he's human and God, but as we learned this morning. But he's like, man, what can I call these people today? Oh, you're fishers? You're fishermen? Let me call you fishers of men, right? Like, Jesus being funny or punny, like... Or why is he calling, by the way, do you know why he called them fishermen? I'm going to make you fishers of men. I mean, maybe. But in Jeremiah chapter 16, God promises he's going to send out the hunters and the fishermen to bring back all the people from exile back to the hymn. So like, all of a sudden, just because we don't know our Old Testament, we're like, oh, Jesus is punny. No, he just knows his Old Testament, and we don't. And again, here, why are we witnesses? Because it's an Old Testament promise. Back in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 10, God is promising once again, as I just mentioned, that he's going to be bringing all of his people out of exile, out of bondage. There's going to be this new exodus event. If you're familiar with the story of Israel, God led them out of like slavery to a, to a terrible ruler, a tyranny of power of, of Egypt, and he led them through a leader, through a baptism, through water, to a new land. And what the promise of the Old Testament prophets is that God is going to do that again. Israel's in bondage to rulers and powers who are dominating and, and suffocating them, and they hate where they're at, and God is promising one day he's going to bring up a new servant, a new ruler, and lead them out, and this second exodus is going to be so amazing, they're going to forget about the first one. It's like when you had Chipotle taco for the first time, you totally forgot about Taco Bell. You never went there again. Why? Because there's something just so much greater, and this is the promise of this second exodus. And God is promising that. And look at this in Isaiah chapter 43, and I have this on the screen. In Isaiah chapter 43, uh, it says this, Fear not, for I'm with you, and I'm going to bring your offspring from the east to the west. I will gather you. I will say the north, give up to the south, do not withhold. And bring my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I have formed and whom I have made. God is promising through Isaiah to, and you got to put yourself in the context of ancient Israel there, that one day God is going to bring them all back to himself. 
And as he's bringing them all back to himself, the chapter goes on in verse 9 to say this on the next slide, all the nations will be there as well. And they're going to assemble. And you're going to picture yourself like in a courtroom with God as the judge and you know, all of his people that he's gathering that have been called by his name for his glory on this side of the courtroom and all the nations on the other side of the courtroom. And God says to all the nations who have been gathered, which of your gods foretold and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say it is true. God is saying to the nations, guess what? You want to have, you say your gods are the true gods? Bring forth all the witnesses that your gods can tell the future like I can, can do all the powerful things that I can do, and know the end from the beginning. God challenges the nations. You bring forth all the witnesses that you have. And the implication is what? They don't have any. Anything to bring before Yahweh and say that their gods are more powerful than they are. And then God says, I'm going to show you and I'm going to witness to you that I am the supreme God, the all-knowing God, the all-powerful God. And if you were God, how would you make your witness known to the world? I'd snap my finger and cause some great earthquake, some great catastrophic signs, so everyone would do what? Freak out and be like, okay, you are God. But how is God in his plan going to show the nations the supremacy of him over all the other gods? Look in verse 10. It says, you, Israel, you, my people, are my witnesses. And my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor there will be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord God, and apart from me there is no Savior. What is God saying? The way that the nations are going to know that I am the supreme God is through you, a people. And that nation, that people of God, are the witnesses to the entire existing world. Those people are the witnesses to all the supernatural powers that are behind those evil people, that there is one God. And now in Acts chapter 1, Jesus brings all of that information back and brings it to the present at that time. And he says to these 12 disciples, remember how in Isaiah chapter 43... God said, one day I'm going to make my people be witnesses to all the nations, all the gods, that he is more powerful than everyone else. That's who you are. And the way you live your life, the way you conduct your life, the way you structure your life together is going to show the world that I am the supreme God. And you're going to take that message not just here, but you're going to see that when you live this way, it's going to necessarily expand the surrounding counties like Judea and Samaria. And eventually that's going to go to the ends of the earth. In short, Isaiah is promising that the people of God, that they will witness to God's great salvation. And now Jesus says, this is who the church is. And lastly, in Isaiah chapter 43, what kept Israel from being able to be these witnesses? Why did it have to be a future promise? In Isaiah chapter 43, in the next slide, it says this, You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but, listen to God, you have burdened me with your sins. 
You have wearied me with my, your iniquities. And I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What is God saying? The reason you failed, Israel, to be my witnesses is because you continue to give yourself to the wrong gods. You continue to burden me with your sins. You continue to weary me with your idolatry. And so the servant had to come and he had to blot out your sins, which is the promise that God is promising them. Even though you've burdened me, I'm one day going to blot them out. Even though you are wearying me and making me tired, one day I'm not going to remember your sins ever again. And this is what Pastor Nate did a great job reminding us this morning. That your sins are as gone as far as the east is from the west. God is not treating you this morning based on your performance this morning. If you're, if you're like me, when I was, had young kids and came and preached, I regularly came up here and be like, how in the world can I now preach? I just like beat my kids. <laughs> like, and God doesn't treat you that way. God doesn't look at you that way. He has blotted out your transgressions so that now, through the promise of that gospel news, the church can actually, through the power of the Spirit, become who they were made to be. So number three, the church's witnesses, that's in fulfillment of Old Testament understanding of who the church is. We are the people who give witness to the nations that God is who He says He is. Number four, in this passage, we see that being witnesses is dependent upon the empowering presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. He says this, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. This is like the commands in this passage. It's just wait. Wait for the Spirit. I mean... Any of you have a hard time waiting for things? Amazon has like ruined me. If it's not here in two days, I'm like, what in the world? Because I want it now. And Jesus is, I know we have the spirit today, and like at this point in the story, they didn't. But I think oftentimes we run ahead of the spirit. In our zeal for God, we don't wait for the Spirit. In our zeal for God, we don't even fellowship with the Spirit. In our desire to want to do things for God, we do not even include the spirits. And Jesus is teaching His disciples right here, and this is the rest of the book of the Acts, and lots of people, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Lots of people say the better title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And the Spirit of God is actually the link and the key to the church unlocking its ability to be witnesses. And I would just ask, how many times do we regularly involve the Spirit of God in what we are trying to do for God? Are we waking up in the morning and being reminded that we need the Spirit? We need to actually listen to Him. How do we know the voices that are going on in our heads if they are truth or lies? How do we know whether or not we can hear the voice of God? Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice and they know Me. 
Do you know the voice of the Spirit of God in you? Because if you're honest with yourself, you've probably got 15 voices going on in your head all the time. The voice of the evil one. The voice of what your kids are saying. The voice of what other people are saying. The voice of what your boss is going to say. The voice of the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Can you hear it? Do you obey it? The reason the church can actually be successful in being witnesses to the ends of the earth is because the Spirit of God is in us and upon us. And this is where the power rests. Did you notice that passage? It says, but you will receive what, church? There's power. And we want to see the power. Because we're just like the Israelites who just want to see things. But you know where the greatest power is that's against you? They're the unseen things. The greatest power that is against you is sin, Satan, and death. The greatest powers against you are not sickness and disease and loss of job. The greatest power that is keeping you from being joyful in the gospel are the supernatural powers. And the Spirit of God is the power that is at work within us to fight against our real enemies, Ephesians 6 tells us. And as we are witnesses of this power... We need to see that being witnesses of this power is actually a communal activity. You're probably wondering why I don't see the power of God. I wonder if you're actually really deeply involved in the people of God. When you're involved deeply with the people of God, you see the power of God. Because this is not an individual activity, an individual event. Jesus is saying collectively, hey you guys, hey y'all, are my witnesses. I can't even say that word right. Like the idea is that this is the, rea- the relationship of God's people together, coming together, living their life together, is where the Spirit of God resides and the power of God is on those people. As we give witness to the resurrection of Jesus together, we need to grow in our dependence and our fellowship and relationship with the Spirit of God. He's really important. I don't just say that flippantly. But Jesus came to the earth for 33 years approximately. How long has the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to the, to the earth to us? For 2,000 years. There's something significant about the role of the spirits in our lives. Then lastly, number five, we are witnesses to the resurrection. What does this mean that we're witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus? Well, first, I think we just need to understand what the resurrection of Jesus actually accomplished. Because in order for you to be a witness to it, you've got to actually know what you're witnessing to. And one of the primary reasons or things that people say about the resurrection is that when Jesus got up out of the grave... It was a demonstration that God the Father was satisfied with Jesus' death on the cross, and so because He was perfectly obeyed the laws we read this, or heard this morning, and because He perfectly took care of our sins, He came up out of the grave to declare that the Father was approving of His sacrifice. Anyone heard that before? And I believe that's true. But I believe there's something deeper and, and more profound about what the resurrection of Jesus actually does. 
See, the resurrection was the most changing event in human history. It is the event that changed the entire course of the world. Because contrary to what you might think, the day human history changed was not July 4, 1776. The day human history changed is when Jesus walked out of the grave. Why? Because on the next slide, that's the day that God's new world was launched and brought forward to us in the present right now. That was the day when the new world invaded the old world. It was the day that the powers of this world were put on notice that their end was imminence. And so now these two worlds, if you've been at redemption for six minutes, you see this slide every eight minutes. These two worlds exist at the same time. It's called the overlap of the ages, or what the Bible calls the last days. And the reason the resurrection is so important is because it is bringing an end to the world that Adam lost through his disobedience. And it's bringing forth the new world that Jesus gained through perfect obedience. And the church is called to give witness that the resurrection brought God's new world to us right now. And as we give witness to the resurrection of Jesus, as Paul says in the book of Corinthians, that to some that will be an aroma of life and to others be an aroma of death. The point is that when the church gives witness to the resurrection of Jesus, it's going to bring others and attract others into this new world. So the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we give witness to Jesus' resurrection that the new world is already here? And here's where our fun exercise comes. I know. As a kid, um, we, I grew up in a church where missionaries came a lot. I don't know if you grew up in a church where missionaries uh, would come and they'd have 13 kids, all start with the letter J. And... They were all Bible names. Some of you are laughing because you have been part of my experience. And we would pay these missionaries, you know, money. And um, this is, again, this is just mean, okay? And I, and I love a lot of missionaries, really did love a lot of missionaries. But they came to ask for money, or they came to show us that the money they gave them was doing something. Does that make sense? Like, they wanted us to support them, or they came back to let us know everything that was happening. Um, and again, that's just not always the motive, but it seemed like that was the reason. We didn't just have them because we liked them. <laughs> um, so it was interesting, um, a few years ago, I was thinking through this like, all right, so if we're missionaries, then what do those missionaries do over there? And how does that relate to who we are as missionaries here? Because I don't think you have to go across the world, across the, you know, across uh, the oceans. I think you can just cross the street and be a missionary. And we have this idea that was, it really was, and if you, I can show you in church history, but we believed for a long time that the center of the kingdom of God was America, and we just sent missionaries all over the world. And so we just exported Christian, American Christianity to the world. And 
we began to wake up to see that that isn't the right way to do it. We're not the center of the kingdom of God. We're not trying to bring American Christianity to places. We're just bringing Jesus. But I began to just ask this question. This is what I want you to break up into groups. If you know anything about missionary life, what did the missionaries, when they actually left and went to their new location, what did they have to do, and what did you expect them to do? So just like break up into groups of people around you, I'm going to give you like two, three minutes, not a long time, and just ask the question, what does the church expect missionaries that we send overseas or to new locations to do once they get to their new location? Okay, so everyone understand the, the, the assignment, if you will, the little test case? Like, what did missionaries do what should they do as soon as they got to a new location? Okay? All right. Take a minute and we'll come back. Spread the word. Make new believers. Yep. Say again. Get a job. Find out relationships. Define needs. Learn language and culture. Yeah. Look for, I'm going to add, to, or maybe say it this way, look for areas in the city of need or brokenness and seek to meet that need and brokenness. Find some way to love them. Say again. Find some way to love them. Find some way to love them. Meet them where they are. Meet them where they are. One of the things we need to do is adopt rather than, I'm not saying you guys did this, but just rather than adopting the individual missionary mindset, I think it would be much healthier to actually, we would have been much healthier as a church to send teams, four or five couples over to a city, not just one couple. And there's a host of reasons and research behind that. But one of the things I'd like us to encourage us to think about is that we are not missionaries alone. But what if your MC just got put in Barcelona, Spain? Well, I'm joining your MC. But number two, like, what if your whole group just got transplanted right there? What if you had a group of five or six other families that were just there to be gospel witnesses together? Wouldn't you be meeting together, praying together, not, it would be like there's still sin and idolatry, but there would be this singular focus that I am in Barcelona, Spain, for what reason? To be a witness for Jesus, right? And yet, somehow, because we're not in Barcelona, Spain, we're in Chesapeake or Virginia Beach, we have this sometimes separate focus. Focus of my American job and dream in life and the focus to be a witness for Jesus. I just think it would be interesting to stop and ask yourself this question. All the things we expect missionaries to be and to do, and yet we call ourselves a family of missionaries, where do our lives need to change to actually be true missionaries? And I will say this from the bottom of my heart, that you'll never really truly change until you see deeply who God has made you to be. And the more you're enwrapped and enthralled in the story of what God has done through Jesus for you by His Spirit, the more that you will actually be caught up into His story to have a singular focus, to be a missionary with God's people. I just think it would be neat to be a, a church 
who is regularly just asking, are we missionaries? Do we give our lives for Jesus and his mission with his people and are imperfectly, and I know this is my own life, imperfectly trying to be a missionary with you, with God's people in Chesapeake? Because what does the church do? It gives witness in the way they structure their life together that Jesus is actually who he says he is. And you read in Acts chapter 2, at the end of Acts chapter 2, and I'm not going to read through this with you, and nor do I think that this is like a, a checklist that we should be doing, but how did the gospel from Acts chapter 1 and 2 in Jerusalem go throughout the book of Acts all the way to Rome? It began with a church in Acts chapter 2 that met daily, that prayed together. No one had any needs because anyone had a need, they met it. It was like this way they structured their life together in Jerusalem was so unique, so unified, so loving, that it began to cause, through the Spirit of God, a revolution in Jerusalem that could not be contained in Jerusalem. And so... How do we organize and structure our lives? Is it around Jesus and his mission? Because one will take precedence. Does that make sense? Like, this is not a 50-50, 50% American whatever story and 50% God story. No, one has an overarching premise. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.